All right, well, good morning again. Welcome, it's good to see all of you today. Uh, we're continuing our parable series this morning. Uh, for the past several weeks, we've been talking about these stories that Jesus told that help us to understand what the kingdom of God is and what it means to be kingdom people. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and just turn right ahead to, to Luke 16. We're going to jump in uh, right into our text today. And just to warn you, we're going to be looking at what I think is one of the weirdest parables that Jesus tells. Um, that's a good thing. We all lost an hour of sleep last night. No one wants a boring parable on Daylight Savings Day. But it's also a good thing because I do think the weirder the parable, the more Jesus draws us in, the more he challenges us, and the more he asks us to think really critically about our lives and what it means to follow him. So yeah, let's just jump in. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Uh, my first job out of college was doing therapy for kids who were on the autistic spectrum. And it was kind of a cool uh, play-based therapy, and really the goal of it was to build social skills by creating positive play experiences. Now, all that to say, there was obviously a decent amount of training for this job. And so I had to shadow a bunch of different therapists and kind of learn from them over the course of, you know, a month or so before I could do sessions on my own. And the only uh, therapist I really remember, the only person I really remember sh shadowing was a guy by the name of Eric. And I remember this because I really didn't like him. Like immediately, as, almost as soon as I met him, I just got a bad vibe from him, and this just continued to get worse. Uh, he was late all the time. He was kind of rude. He didn't uh, seem like he wanted me to be there at all. He also didn't really seem like he cared that much about the kids or, or the job. Like when we were in private, he would kind of make mean comments about the kids or the parents. 
And so I don't know, I just thought he was kind of a jerk. And so it took me kind of a long time to admit something to myself, that he was actually a really good therapist. He was very good at his job. As much as I didn't like him, I found myself consistently being impressed by all of his strategies, all his activities. He seemed really effective. And so as I went out on my own, I realized that I had incorporated a lot of his strategies into my own sessions. Now, most of us have felt this kind of tension in one way or another, right? That we can learn good lessons from iffy or, or even bad people. And it might feel a little bit weird or unsettling, but it's true, right? Even a bad person can show us something good. And in a way, I think this is part of the challenge of this parable. Because what we see right away is that this manager, this main character, is not a hero. He's not an especially good or loving or faithful person. Probably the most generous way you could describe him is to just say he's like, a little bit shady, right? He's iffy. But at worst, and probably more realistically, he's a con artist and a criminal. And yet he's the, the protagonist of our story. He's the main character. And worse yet, more surprising yet, Jesus seems to be saying, in some sense, I want you to be like this guy. I want you to learn about the kingdom from him. And so the question we have to ask is, what is this parable really about? Or what good lesson does Jesus want us to learn from this bad person? In order to answer those questions, we really need to kind of walk through this parable together really carefully. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. Uh, verse 1, right? Jesus begins this, this parable by introducing us to the situation of our protagonist. He's described as a manager who's in charge of the estate of some nameless rich man. We don't really know very much about the rich man or his relationship with the manager. We don't even really know what the manager did wrong, but we know that he's been accused of mismanaging the rich man's finances. He's wasted, in some way, his possessions. Now, right there, we have to stop and just consider some important context. Luke 16, obviously, is a part of a larger story, a part of a larger journey that Jesus and his disciples and his followers are on. And if you look at Luke 15, the parable immediately preceding this one, you'll see that the, the previous verses are the most famous parable Jesus ever told, the parable of the prodigal son. And in a way, these, these parables are kind of related. They're almost like two sides of the same coin. They think about the similarities here. Both feature main characters who have squandered the wealth of somebody above them, right? So the prodigal son takes his father's inheritance and wastes it away on decadent living. And here we have this manager who wastes the possessions of his rich master. And this is a pretty significant issue in Jesus' vision of the kingdom. As we consider what it means to be kingdom people, one of the most important things that Jesus wants to ask ourselves, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, is how do we allocate, how do we use the resources that God has blessed us with? We see this as we near the end of the parable, and we'll get to this later, but at the end of the day, Jesus is talking about money here, wealth, possessions. 
And so it seems here that one of the great dangers in life, one of the things that Jesus wants to warn us against, is wasting those resources, not using what we have wisely. And so the parable of the prodigal son uh, kind of in short reminds us of the beauty of grace. And we're going to talk about this parable more in a few weeks. But the basic idea is pretty familiar, right? Jesus, or God, receives us and accepts us. He welcomes us home. We can always return home in repentance. And so our parable kind of continues that story and asks the question, how do we build on that repentance? As we come back into the Father's house, how do we now do better? How do we live faithfully with the blessing and grace we've received? Let's continue on in this story. So the manager has messed up. He's squandered the wealth of his master, and he's now faced with a a pretty daunting prospect. He has uh, no job, no money, and seemingly uh, very few options. He thinks to himself, well, I don't want to beg. That makes sense. I'm not strong enough to dig. And so he comes up with a plan. And I think one of the keys to appreciating this parable is understanding that this is a pretty good plan. It's actually kind of ingenious. There's this manager, he's making moves here. See, he knows he's getting fired, but he also knows that he still has some time to leverage his position. Uh, His master's wealthy, deep-pocketed clients, they don't know he's been fired. And, And to some degree, it seems like he still has some authority, that he hasn't officially been let go yet. And so he goes to these wealthy clients, each of them who owes a significant amount to the rich man, to the master. And he goes to them in secret, and he gives them an offer of a lifetime. The first client owes 900 gallons of olive oil. And so the manager goes to him, and he's like, hey, you know what? I'm feeling generous today. I know you know 900, but let's make it 450 gallons, 50% off. All of you bargain hunters know 50%. That's the gold standard of a good discount, right? This isn't a BOGO. This isn't buy one, get one 50. It's not 40%, which they'll always give you 50%. That's a great deal. So, of course, the client says, sure. Amber's back there nodding, like, yep, 50%. That's what I'm looking for. So he goes to the second debtor. He owes 1,000 bushels of wheat. The manager's like, hey, listen, I'm really not supposed to do this. My my boss is going to kill me. But just because I like you so much, I'm going I'm to let you pay it off for 800, 20%. I've never given a better deal than that in my life. 800 bushels, let's settle it now, and the client agrees. Now, this is a little bit convoluted, and so we have to understand what's happening here. The manager isn't stealing the rich man's money, right? He's not just pocketing all this stuff. What he's doing is that he's allowing them to settle their bill for a, a smaller amount, Um, Likely there's some interest involved in these debts, and so he's probably able to have them pay these things off without losing the manager a significant amount of money. And he's doing this for a purpose. Again, he's not taking their money, but what he's trying to win for himself is favor. He's trying to place himself in good standing with these wealthy clients. In short, he's trying to make friends. He thinks to himself, in a few days, maybe a few hours, I'm going to need some help. And if I help out these guys now, maybe they'll help me later. Maybe they'll give me a job. Maybe they'll give me a place to stay. Maybe they'll give me a couple bucks for my trouble. 
And again, <laughs> let's be real clear, the manager is not our model for kingdom living, for financial stewardship, for ethical business practices. Because what he's doing is clearly dishonest and probably illegal. Uh, he doesn't have permission to adjust the debts of these men. He's going behind his master's back. And on top of that, there's, there's kind of a larger problem with him. He's, uh, his motives are purely selfish. He, he's kind of worldliness in its most basic form. He's acting in his own interest out of self-preservation, and he's using money to move forward his self-interest. It's interesting, in many translations of this passage, he's described not as the dishonest manager, but as the unrighteous manager. Jesus is trying to be real clear here. This is a guy who is opposed to kingdom values. And so it's quite the shock in verse 8 when Jesus kind of gives us the plot twists of all plot twists. The rich man, the master, he finds out about this manager's schemes. And his response isn't anger. He doesn't have him arrested. Instead, he commends him for his shrewdness. Despite all this dishonesty, despite all the things that he's done, he applauds him, pats him on the back for his scheming. Imagine being with Jesus when he told this parable. Imagine being one of the disciples, right? And you think you know where he's going, right? You kind of think you know what this parable is about. You've got this guy who's acting dishonestly. I'm like, okay, I see where this is going, Jesus. This dishonest guy, he's going to, everything's going to fall apart for him, or his situation is going to get worse. Maybe this is one of those parables where he ends up getting thrown out into the fire with the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. I get it. We should, be, we should have integrity in our interactions with others. Let's go eat. But then Jesus says, actually, he's commended. And you're like, what? Jesus, I think you're getting your parables mixed up. You're, you're telling the story wrong. This guy is unrighteous. He's dishonest. You just told us this. He's a bad guy. But we see again how, how Jesus, the master storyteller, he kind of unravels our expectations. He's drawing us in. Kingdom living is not predictable or conventional. And the reason Jesus holds up this manager, the reason why he is commended, is because there is one thing, one behavior that Jesus wants us to emulate. What the master shows us is the human capacity for creativity, ingenuity, imagination, for having wits and street smarts. Even though his motives are wrong, even though his plan is illegal, he shows us that people, we have this ability, this innate ability to get what we want. When the chips are down, when there's no other options, he's able to use all of his available resources all the power and leverage he has left, and he finds a way to make friends. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't celebrating a criminal's lifestyle, but what he's pointing out is something positive in the criminal mindset. And there's really kind of two words I want to hone in on, and I'll use throughout this message. It's a determination to get what one wants and a resourcefulness in getting it determination, and resourcefulness. 
Think about the, like, the con men from your favorite heist movie. I, I think of like Ocean's Eleven, right? Danny Ocean. He's got this impossible situation, this crazy complex security system and an uncrackable safe, and it's in the middle of the desert, and there's all the security, and in a casino at the bottom of this elevator shaft, but what does he do? He figures it out. He gets a crew together. They come up with the perfect plan. He's got you know, a, a person who imitates other people. He's got a driver. He's got a little Asian guy who fits in small boxes. He's got everything he needs for this plan. He's determined and resourceful. And the fun of the movie is that there's a little bit of beauty in this creativity. Maybe think of real life criminals and con artists and cheaters. Bernie Madoff, Barry Bonds, basically every influencer on TikTok. You know, these people who are able to pull one over your eyes. And we might not like their behavior. We wouldn't glorify their actions. But when you think about it, you kind of have to tip your cap a little bit to the hustle, right? Like, man, that was, that was a pretty good plan. They got us there. You see the determination, the resourcefulness. That's what we see from this manager. He's not an honest guy. He's not a particularly good person, but he is shrewd. And then here's where Jesus really twists the knife, where he really pushes against our expectations, because what he tells the disciples is that you could use a little bit of this shrewdness. You could stand to learn something from a criminal. And he says, not in doing bad things with bad motives, but in doing good things for the kingdom. He says in verse 8, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Jesus is saying, what if you had the shrewdness of this manager with the heart of the kingdom? What if you used all of your intelligence, your craftiness, your ingenuity, your determination, your resourcefulness, your creativity for the kingdom? What if you used it to bless others, to make friends, to show grace, to bring goodness? He's saying, imagine how powerful it would be if followers of Jesus were like, I'm going to go to any lengths. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to make a plan. I'll crack this code in serving the kingdom. Uh, this reminds me a little bit of uh, one of my favorite TV shows, uh, The Office. If you don't watch The Office, this isn't going to make a lot of sense to you, but it's a good analogy. <laughs> but basically, The Office is about a, a group of people who work at a paper company called Dunder Mifflin. And one of the main characters is a tall, good-looking, very capable guy named Jim. And Jim hates his job. He hates selling paper. But what he does love is playing pranks on his coworker, Dwight. And so he you know, puts his stapler in jello. He comes to work dressed up exactly like him. He imitates him. He is able to convince Dwight that his computer has come to life and developed sentience. And he spends a lot of time and effort on all of these pranks. And this is one of the running gags throughout the show. But it's also kind of one of the serious questions that the show wrestles with is that is Jim ever going to use all this talent, all this creativity, all this scheming to make something of himself? Or is he going to waste his life selling paper and playing pranks? And this is kind of the heart of the parable. 
this question of will we use this energy, this intelligence, this craftiness we have, not use it on worldly gain, not use it on self-preservation, not waste away our lives selling paper or playing pranks, but will we use it for good, for blessing? Uh, there's a, a parable in Matthew that's pretty similar to this one. It's, it's kind of related. You might have thought of this parable as we were reading this one, but it's called the parable of the talents. And in this parable, there's another master and there's these servants, and the master uh, gives each of these servants a certain amount of his wealth uh, to, to guard over, to, to keep safe. And then he goes on his journey. He comes back and he finds that two of these servants have taken the wealth and gained more wealth from it. And they're commended. One of the servants, however, buries the wealth, does nothing with it, and so he's punished. And this is one of the most common parables that we talk about when we think about you know, using our gifts, using our abilities, using what God has given us, using all of these resources. And there's a simple idea, right? We should identify and use all this stuff to serve God. And what I think this parable here, this parable of the shrewd manager does, is it takes it the next step further. Because yes, we all have certain things God has given us. Yes, we should identify and we should use those things. But the big question is, do I actually care enough to use those things for God? Do I care enough to figure it out? with all of my determination and resourcefulness to look at my life, to look at what I'm good at, to look at all this stuff I could use and say, how can I apply this to a greater purpose? So I think what's important is that Jesus recognizes something about us. He knows us all so well, and he knows that our hearts. He knows our capacity. And so he looks at us and he says, I know you can do this. I know every single one of you is able to get what you want when you need to. Maybe not everything, but all of you have jobs, all of you have abilities, all, have you, all of you have been out in the world and been very shrewd when you want to be shrewd. He says, I made you that way. I made you to have these abilities. And the question is, are, are you going to use those things for me? Do you want me enough to apply those things to the kingdom? Are you desperate enough to find a way in the same way that the shrewd manager was desperate to find a way? Uh, the great reformer Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther says this, we see every day, all too often, how the world pursues its own ends so devotedly because it has its interests at heart and spares no pain or effort to get them. On the other hand, we see how the children of light, that is, confessed Christians, are, are, are unproductive, listless, negligent, and indolent in divine matters, even though they know that God delights in their efforts and that they will enjoy his pleasure in eternity. For them, it is a great struggle to do what is good. He continues, draw a profitable lesson from the awful conduct of the world and look at it this way. If a peasant, burger, merchant, blacksmith, wife, maid, and so on can serve the devil with such diligence, sparing no pains, why shouldn't I want to serve my Lord 
in the same manner with whom one day I hope to share eternity. Yikes. That's heavy. That's a hard quote to listen to. But this is why Jesus tells the parable this way. This is why he uses this iffy, shady character to point out this discrepancy at how good evil people are at doing evil and how bad we often are at doing good. And the point isn't to shame us or embarrass us, but it's a contrast that ultimately reveals the condition of our hearts. We can't help but read this and think, yeah, I guess so. We get to this point of the story, and, and Jesus asks us, would, would you do that for me? Would you work that hard for me? And the question he wants us to wrestle with is, why not? Why is this so hard? And this brings us to the real lesson of the passage. Jesus, again, he's kind of pushing at us and prodding us and the little jabs here. And, and then in verse 13, we get to the real knockout punch. This is the subversive truth of the passage. As the parable comes to a close, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And we've all heard this verse. We reference this verse a lot. Even on its own, with no context, it's a powerful reminder of the importance of serving God over money. But when we think about it in the context of this passage, I think it really comes to life. Because as we consider how we leverage ourselves, our lives, how determined and resourceful we are, and creative we are in serving God, what Jesus is saying is that God and money are competing for that shrewdness, for the very best of us. And we have to decide who we are going to be creative for. Who am I going to be the most determined for? Who am I going to be the most resourceful for? Is it God or is it money? And I think we can all acknowledge that most of the time, a lot of the time, we view life through the lens of money's influence, money's power. Through this lens of money and financial matters and stuff and possessions, that's kind of at the top of the priority list. I mean, think about the way we think about making money, right? I'm going to make money no matter what. I'm going to find a way to make a living. If I get fired, I'll figure it out. If things get hard, if something happens, I'll make sure I make money because that's what life is about. I'll figure out a way to do it. I will serve God and love people if there's time if it's convenient. When God is our master, the paradigm flips. It doesn't mean that we don't have to care about money at all or that we shouldn't make money, but what it does mean is when God is our master, that commitment, that devotion, that I absolutely will do this no matter what, I'll find a way, that goes to serving God and his kingdom purpose. That goes to loving people. That goes to blessing others and showing grace. I'm going to do that. I'm going to find a way. I'll make a plan. I'll figure it out. I'll get a posse together, and we will love people. We'll crack that code. The question that Jesus leaves us with is, who do you work for? 
who gets your very best, your creativity, your determination, your resourcefulness. Uh, I've talked about this before, but uh, during the pandemic, I learned something interesting about myself that I didn't know, is that I'm very good at buying and selling bikes. Uh, there's a bunch of different skills that go into this. There's like a little bit of creativity and resourcefulness. Uh, I have an eye for undervalued assets. So I could look at a bike and see it and say, that's worth more than it's listed for. I also had time to, to drive long distances. I could go down to San Diego or West LA to pick up a bike. Uh, this was during the pandemic, so it took like 20 minutes to get to San Diego. You know, it's crazy. But I'm also good at making bikes look good on like OfferUp or Facebook Marketplace, right? I could take pictures or write descriptions that make the bike look and sound awesome. Now, let me be real clear. I was not trying to be dishonest or shady. I'm, I'm not that guy. I really did try to do this with a certain amount of integrity. I didn't want to rip anybody off. But in doing this, I was able to, uh, you know, make a, make a little bit of money. First of all, I was able to get great bikes for me and Pastor Eric and, and Nick, and that was awesome. But then once I had done that, it was just like, it was so easy. I could pick up a bike for a thousand bucks on a Tuesday and sell it on a Thursday for 1500. No sweat. It was, it was like completely super simple. But what was eye-opening for me as I, as I was doing this and as I, I've kind of looked back on it, is how much my mind was just programmed to that question, how can I make more money? Like, what can I do now to, to get more, to, to keep on doing this? Like, what new cities can I search for bikes in? Or what, like, little repairs or fixes can I make that, you know, increase its value? Later on, I began to dream bigger. Like, what if there's another product that I could buy and sell and, and, and make even more? Like, maybe I could learn how to do the stock market and apply all these gifts to that, and I could get rich, right? Like, it was like breathing how easy it is for your mind to go there. Eric is over here giving away bikes to kids and going on mission trips, and I'm like, maybe I could buy a pony. <laughs> and look, again, I don't think there's anything inherently bad about what I was doing. I was trying to be honest. Uh, but it does expose something in me. And I don't really think of myself as a super materialistic, money-hungry person. But it's so easy to be resourceful and determined when it comes to our stuff, when it comes to money, when it comes to making more. The default setting in life is for money to be master. Uh, the kids and Alyssa were playing the board game Life yesterday. I was like, I don't want to play. I'm going to lie on the couch here. But you know how you win the game of life? You guys remember? You have the most money. The game of life is you win by having money. This is our default setting. It's how we think about things. And so it's easy for us. But then when you contrast that to how hesitant we can be sometimes to serve others, I think about how quick I am to give up when it's hard to love someone how rarely I dream bigger about new and better ways to bless others, how much I lack creativity when it comes to showing grace. And that's a sobering reality, but it's a fact for most of us. And it's this reality that Jesus wants to push back against and remind us that this is not how life in the kingdom works. 
In his commentary on this parable, Doug Webster says this, we are called to sanctify worldly wealth by using it in an unworldly way. Instead of idolizing it and making it a God, listen to this, we are meant to make it a servant. By God's grace, we make it holy. On this side of eternity, money is meant to serve kingdom purposes. So this is not a moralistic parable about curbing materialism. It is about setting kingdom priorities in the use of worldly wealth precisely because we have been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Christ. See, I think this is one of the most important things we can take from the Gospels and from this parable. We have to remember this, is that Jesus is not against money. He doesn't want us to hate money. Money is ultimately neutral. But what Jesus is saying is, Jesus isn't saying that we can't make money, we can't spend money, we can't save money, or we can't use money wisely. But what he is saying is that money cannot rule over us. We cannot waste away our lives giving the very best of ourselves to this one thing. We can't give all that we have, our creativity, ingenuity, imagination, determination, diligence, all of it. We can't always give that to money. But money goes along with all the other things. Money is one of those resources we use for this larger purpose of serving the king and living for his kingdom. And so at the end of the day, I, I think Jesus is inviting us to, to two different things here as we close out this parable. Now, first, obviously, we want to consider our own response. And hopefully you've been doing this. How can we be creative, determined, resourceful in loving others? What, God, what gifts has God given me? How do I use my gifts in work, in, in my hobbies, and all these things, all these other pursuits? And how can I take that and use that for people? But I also think this parable invites us to consider a different response, the response of Jesus. So I think there's two contrasts here in this parable, the contrast between the, the uh, dishonest manager and us, but also the dishonest manager and Jesus. Jesus is always pointing us in the direction of the cross. And the cross is the ultimate contrast to this manager. It's Jesus using all of himself, his very best. The cross is the most determined, creative, resourceful act in all of history. And so Jesus tells us this parable in light of his grace. We have to remember, he's telling us in light of this idea that he is bringing our prodigal hearts home. He has already received us, even in our imperfection, even though we have squandered wealth. We may continue to squander wealth. He's saying, I'm still welcoming you home. And he's saying, I'm doing that. I brought you home so that you could live for something better. So that you could follow me in giving your life to serve others. So that you could be this unstoppable force of creativity and determination. And that right there is the kingdom of God, the church, the people of light at work in the world. Let's pray.